0: Episode 17, Melanie Parrish, The Experimental Leader.
1: I, I love this question. It's a fantastic question. It's really interesting to think about because we have all these happy accidents in in the work that we do.
0: I'm Mark Rabin. This is My Favorite Mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and now on with the show. Hi, welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and we're joined today by Melanie Parrish, She's an author, speaker, podcast host. She's the founder of Experimental Leader Academy, and she's a master certified coach. Melanie is the author of the book, The Experimental Leader. I love that title. So I'm looking forward to delving into that. She is an expert in problem solving operations, strategic hiring, brand development, and she's consulted and coached organizations ranging from a Fortune 50 company to IT startups. So Melanie, thank you for being here. How are you?
1: Mark, I'm super excited to talk to you. I can't wait today.
0: Yeah, so I want to uh, you know, explore. I can't wait to get into um, talking about the book and some of the work you do. But as we usually do, we'll jump right in. What's your favorite mistake, Melanie?
1: Sure. my I, I love this question. It's a fantastic question. It's really interesting to think about because uh, we have all these happy accidents in in the work that we do. And mm-hmm. um, mine is from my early days as a leadership coach, I had been an executive coach or I'd been a business coach for a long time, but I started to work more with executives. And so I had a website and I put that up on the website and um, probably even did a little SEO in those days. And And I got this inquiry from a company that wanted to bring a coaching culture to their work. Um, and I was so excited. I, and I was pretty naive about how contracts work and all of those things, but I, you know, in my mind, it was like this great client was just reaching out to me to um, to get a quote. So mm-hmm. I dove full in. I I committed lots and lots of time to it, mm-hmm. and um, and I wrote a gorgeous proposal. I got some help from a friend who had done a lot of work. And she took me through the process and I fully committed to it. And um, and the, the shocker was I got the job and it ended up being one of, one of my best clients. And It was years later that I realized they, they mentioned when I was like on a retreat with them and we were all good friends by then mm-hmm. that I was like the third bid they were getting because they had already picked someone. And so they were just looking for me to throw out a number, so they could go with the Center for Creative Leadership, which is a huge company. I was a tiny, tiny shop, mm-hmm. and um, and so my happy mistake was in my naivety, like that I just let it, um, that I just let it happen, that I went all in, and you know I wouldn't do that today. I would have the seasoned approach of really trying to assess and really trying to qualify someone who reached out to me to find mm-hmm. out if it was worth my time. My time is more valuable, but the, the reason it's my favorite mistake is that the mistake worked. And, um, and it really has informed how I might approach a contract even now because um, I think to myself, you know, maybe it's worth going all in. Maybe it's yeah. worth, you know, taking a risk and allowing myself to go for the ride. Yeah. Um, I and so that's that's my happy mistake.
0: Sure. And so you know, when uh, I'm curious to learn more, let's say, let's say, if you were coaching somebody who's in a similar situation and they say, "Hey, I've got this lead. They want a proposal." Um, you know, even even though, and so, what, how do you think it worked out then in this case? Sorry, before we jump about. Uh, into you know maybe coaching someone else um you said they were in sort of intending like they probably needed three bids bureaucracy right. being what it is and then you know was it that you um ended up undercutting everybody else or they they loved the proposal what were the the factors that led to that working out when it sounds like you're saying it probably shouldn't have worked out
1: yeah it probably shouldn't have worked out like um well, I think there's been multiple times in my life that I just pretended I could do the work, mm-hmm. that I knew how. And mm-hmm. and I, I realize now that I actually have a real strength in in project design. So I'm really good at designing a project that has a flow and it makes sense and it works. And I really look for good outcomes. And I think they liked all of that. Like the design was good. Um, I think they didn't expect to like me, but then I spent a lot of time with them, you know, in my, you know, sort of place in the world I was, I had time to get on the calls and walk them through the proposal. Um, and so it worked out for, I think it worked out because I built a relationship
0: Mm -hmm. because
1: I had time. Um, I was able to somehow convince them that I had credibility, um, probably just through good marketing, Mm um, and the proposal was good. It was it was a solid proposal, and it wasn't. Um, I might have offered them. Um, I offered them a coaching gym at that time, so it was a a dedicated person for a certain number of hours a week, and they could use it as much as they could. Mm-hmm. They were a manufacturing firm, and I think that it was a really good fit for them, um, because there wasn't any. There was nobody else competing with that product. Mm-hmm. And sort of that flexibility of being early in startup allowed me to just think of what they needed and then make that product. I didn't have to fit them into my offerings already.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you feel like that's the case today? You know, now that you're more established, you would have that filter of does this fit what I do? Is that that's limiting? So funny.
1: Yeah. It's it's so funny because I'm doing something very similar right now, but it is for a long time client. Mm-hmm. They asked me to do something, and I've been playing in the um, I've been playing in the online space, creating online courses, and so I'm doing. So I'm right now in the process of. I, I was I was going to say no, no, I wouldn't do that now, but now I'm doing it. Um, I like to say yes to clients and then just put a price tag on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they asked me to do four workshops for their in healthcare um and so i'm putting on those four workshops but then i'm doing an online automated course for them that'll be evergreen for 2 years mm-hmm. so um i'm more likely to develop something um automated these days cuz that that's kind of the land i want to play in
0: mm-hmm. so um maybe I'll ask you to go into coach mode then. So let's say I, I came to you and say, you know Melanie, I, uh, this organization reached out to me, they want a proposal. Um, you you alluded earlier, you know this idea of you know checking more into the background or doing due diligence. What would you advise me to look at before just rushing into the work of writing a writing a proposal um, you know doing a, a RFP response, um, if that's part of the circumstances, can be really time consuming, and I've sort of tried to swear that off. Um, but what what advice do you have about checking in, uh, you know, to things to make sure that it's really the right situation to even go and put a proposal in for?
1: Well, I, th- I think my advice would be don't write an RFP unless you've helped create the RFP.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like
1: unless you know you're the prime candidate on an RFP. But I think if somebody comes to you for something, the first question I would ask is around your passion. Like if you're gonna branch out into something new, do you get excited about it? Do you love it? Is it, is it, um, is it fun? Does it, you know, make your creativity flow? Um, or is it just that you're doing it for the money? Because I, I never recommend just doing it for the money. I think anybody who works for the money, like hates their work. Yeah. Um, so I always I always want to call people forth to be creative, to find the place where they love their work, because there's a place that the marketplace will buy the thing you love to deliver yeah. um, if you work hard enough at finding that thing. Yeah. Um, so that synergy between client and passion is so important, um, especially if we're creating something custom for a client. Sure.
0: So um, I wanna follow up and um, learn more about your book. I imagine there was a passion that went into um, not not just starting to write a book, but completing the book. And again, congratulations on that, The Experimental Leader. And uh, the the subtitle uh, is Be a New Kind of Boss to Cultivate an Organization of Innovators. So I think there's a a lot we can just unpack from the title of the book and and use that as a, a bit of a preview. Um, but before we do that, I like to ask authors, like you know, what was what was the the genesis of saying I, I, I'm going to or I, I need to write this book?
1: Yeah. So the genesis was I got fired. Oh, okay. And I think I'm under an NDA about you know how that happened, but I was I was kind of mad and kind of sad, and um, and I didn't want that to be the story in my head. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to take that time because all of a sudden I had some free time. I had been working 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. I'd been working so hard and, um, and I had a minute. And so I wanted to um, see if I could sort of take some of the things I had been learning, some of the things I'd been working on and um, really, turn it into, you know, make lemon, lemonade out of lemons. Sure. Um, and so I I started and it took me seven years. Um, it was a big, long process. Mm-hmm. And the book that I wrote wasn't the book that I started to write. Um, and when I look at the parts of the book, when I use the book, it's a way better book than I thought I was gonna write. <laughs> like I, I'm i really proud of it. And, and I say that because... I had really great editors and collaborators along the way who really helped me flesh it out and make it better than I could see Mm -hmm. by asking hard questions along the way. So my thoughts evolved as I wrote it. And I loved that process. I felt like I was constructing another universe where the experimental leader lived, you know, and what was their world like? And, and, um, and that was really cool. And, and constructing that reality wasn't, a simple process.
0: So um, where did you learn the, this, this approach of being an experimental leader? And um, before we, we, we t- learn more about what, what that is and what you advise to others, but there, there, there's something in your background that said, oh, experimentation is good and, and leaders should aspire to thinking and operating that way.
1: Well, I I had started to coach um, some leaders who were in software development. I'd started to learn about the difference between agile development and waterfall, and started to um, see just a, a different way of things evolving. I'd been studying continuous improvement. I'd been studying. Um, The Theory of Constraints with Eliyahu Goldratt. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing all of these methods. I think you do a lot with Lean. Mm -hmm. So I was seeing all of these methods. And I started to ask myself as a leadership coach, what does it take to lead these? It's one thing to do them tactically. But if you're going to lead that, who are you? What do you have to do? How do you do that? And, And those are questions I ask to this day. I think they're the hardest questions in my sphere of influence. So it's it's one thing for me to teach you, how do you do an experiment? How do you iterate? How do you collect data? But on a large scale, if there's a lot of those going on in an organization, how do you lead that? How do you inspire that? How do you manage that? How do you check mm-hmm. in? How do you pay attention? Um, all of those things. And so I realized there was a real space um, that was, within lean, within continuous improvement, within all of those things that was the leader's role in that. yeah. And that's what drove this book.
0: Yeah. And, and, and you're right. I do a lot of work with um, continuous improvement methodologies, and it's often framed using language like scientific problem solving, or, you know, instead of implementing something, forming a hypothesis that we then go and test, which is more of that, you know, experimental language, the difference between knowing the answer and figuring the answer out in experimental yeah. ways, right?
1: Well, knowing the answer is probably, you're probably just wrong. You probably don't know the answer. You know- It would be a it, mistake, yes. It might be a mistake. I mean, you might luck into the answer, but you don't know the answer sure. um, until you try it. And that's true almost universally. You can you can guess at the answer, but to unless you query the answer, unless you collect the data, then, you're just guessing Mm -hmm. and you're, and in many cases, you're investing thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in your guess.
0: Yeah. So to become an experimental leader or to make strides in that direction, you know, again, the subtitle talks about being a new kind of boss. Easier said than done, maybe, but what's an example of somebody, you know, who, um, has said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to change my leadership style, be a new kind of boss.
1: Um, well, I, I have multiple clients who do, but I, I don't know that I can say their names online, but... but, um, but I, I can talk generally about that process sure. and what I see. One thing I see is it's not like you flip a switch and overnight you're an experimental <laughs> leader. Right. Um, I, I often talk with my clients about seeding ideas in organizations. Start talking today about the thing you want to happen three years from now. So the, the first way to become an experimental leader is to start to use the language of experimentation, just mm-hmm. like you just did a minute ago. We're gonna, we're gonna have a hypothesis, we're gonna test that hypothesis, and then we're gonna make decisions based on that hypothesis. That's great experimental leader language, right there. You, yeah. you, you get the check mark. The, um, the other thing is I think that often what I see in leadership, and I have a whole chapter about it in my book, is about reactive leadership styles so we um we feel like we have to be powerful or we have to create rules or we have there's a, there's a variety of traps that we fall down as leaders and and i believe that this happens because when we're new leaders we're looking around for examples and we don't have any data to evaluate which examples are good and which examples aren't so we try on things like i know for myself as a leader i tried on you know i i thought about you know, powerful white men who made declarations. And so I tried that for a while and that didn't really work so well. So then I tried other things. And, and so the first step to becoming an experimental leader, I always say is getting to neutral. How do you, how do you almost be a blank slate so that you are listening more, taking in information, evaluating data, so that you are moved by that data. You aren't coming in with a preconceived notion or a preconceived idea of what you want, because that really gets in the way of, of leading toward innovation.
0: Yeah. Well, and that really resonates with me. I like the way you put that, um, uh, you know, without theory of, of how to lead, um, it's natural that people would tend to to mimic or follow their own of leaders
1: Of course, yeah.
0: And, until they figure out what works, what doesn't work, and sometimes people get stuck in the trap of not reflecting and evaluating: is this working or not? It, just, it becomes a habit. This is the way the way I lead. So I think it's it's it, it can be difficult, but I think it's helpful to try to challenge some of the way we've always done things, even if that mm-hmm. includes the way we've led.
1: Well, and I think. Um... You know, there's so many different sort of ways you can lead the servant leader, the, um, the powerful leader, you know, the, the technical leader. There's all these different styles, but making sense of that ourselves, translating that into something that we do, you know, what's the action or the inaction of each of those stance? I think it's really important to understand those.
0: Yeah. And um, I was just thinking back, I went and checked the episode number, episode eight with Jamie V. Parker. She talks about that exact same um, scenario that you raised, Melanie, that when she was a new leader, she followed um, the command and control structure that was being yeah. modeled um, by others. And, and she eventually, I think eventually came around, I'm paraphrasing that, that that just didn't feel right to her. And she learned other methods, uh, felt more authentic to her and were more effective yeah so. and
1: and um I talk about that in my book but it, it a lot of it comes from Stephen Bungay um and his book the Art of action where he's talking about intents in leadership mm-hmm. and and I I've sort of um added some layers to that around mission and vision and values um and and putting those in the context of timelines and things like that but but knowing what you want to have happen and then experimenting on the best way to achieve that, um, is is really powerful in leadership. And it also allows all the brains in the organization to be firing rather than the leader pointing to something and saying, do this, do that, do this, do that, which I always see as the, the lowest form of leadership mm-hmm. is the, let me give you a tactical work list today um, and should be avoided at all costs. Yeah. yeah.
0: So what would be your elevator speech version of, of somebody saying, you know, because I'm, I'm sold already personally on the idea that we should have an organization full of innovators, as your subtitle refers to. But if you're on the elevator and someone's skeptical and they're like, Melanie, I don't know why. I mean, we, uh, we, have, a hand, we have a specialized department that does innovation. Why do we need an organization full of innovators? Why is that necessary or helpful?
1: That's that's, what an interesting question. Um, I I just assume we want an organization of innovators because I think I think that innovation, I think, um, for one thing, every company is a tech company today, whether it's in their marketing and the way they uh, do client attraction or, you know, front, you know, their product, they have a product that's in tech or if their product just should be in tech, they, they're becoming tech companies. Mm-hmm. So because of that, you know, tech is the ultimate alchemy, creating something from nothing. And so we want brains working at every layer of the organization innovatively, or you can't keep up with just the basic tech that's required today. I think of my, you know, my, my dogs like to escape my yard. So I have a, you know, one of those radio fences. Yeah and i think of all the tech in that one you know in my dog collar now <laughs> it's a dog collar yeah. it's a chain essentially it's a chain and a collar but now it's tech mm-hmm. if that's tech then everything is tech my groceries are tech they come through instacart mm-hmm. you know it it so i think that there is no place to hide anymore funny um one of the funniest things is that there are um, legacy products and tech organizations, and that may be the best place to hide if you're not an innovator is you can work on a legacy product in a software company for a really long time, but everybody else is innovating. Um, so I, I guess my elevator speech is sort of what are you waiting for? Yeah. Don't miss the boat. you know it's it's everyone's everybody's already on the boat. it's time to get on board.
0: So one other question I wanted to ask about, um, you know, being an experimental leader, how does an experimental leader react when an experiment doesn't work out the way they predicted? Some might frame that as a mistake, but what, what would you say an experimental leader does when
1: that happens? The only time I would say it's actually a mistake is if you've extended the timeline so long that it was, you've spent more money than you can afford to lose. Wow. Oh. So it's really important that the experiments be safe to fail, which means I I always want experiments to be either 24 hours or seven days, like Mm -hmm. anything longer than that. If it takes you longer than that, you haven't prototyped well enough. Mm -hmm. You want, because um, it's only a mistake if you've you've harmed yourself. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just data. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I hear you saying small mistakes. And I think of mentors and coaches I've had. Who have said basically, you know, through experimentation, small failures prevent large failures. So yes, that's a helpful framework.
1: Yes, and the and the data is going to save you. It's not you're not guessing. If you're guessing and investing, you haven't collected enough data to find out if your um, your idea is has validity in the marketplace or um, that the the solution that you're putting in place has proof of concept.
0: Yeah, And if we're experimenters, those failures are learning opportunities. It almost seems cliche at this point, but it's true, I
1: think. Yeah, the failures are, are, I mean, I don't even, it's not, it's like if you're experimenting well, failure is just information. Mm
0: -hmm. Well said. Well said. So um, our guest has been Melanie Parrish. Um, Her book is The Experimental Leader. Um, You can find more at melanieparish.com. The book is available um, on Amazon. But uh, Melanie, you had a special offer that you wanted to share.
1: Yeah, sure. I would love to offer uh, the book free to your listeners. I'd love for you to check it out. I can give you a digital copy at book.experimentalleader.com. And the promo code for it is podcast 100 podcast 100
0: so i'll make sure that link and everything is in the show notes um, in the podcast app and on, on the the blog post the webpage um, for this episode um so melanie I'm, re- I'm really glad that that we could meet and do the podcast um, look forward to reading more of the book the sample really kind of drew me in and and, and this is right at my alley this idea of uh, experimentation so thank you for being here on my favorite mistake
1: Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to pause and think about your own favorite mistake and how learning from mistakes shapes you personally and professionally. If you're a leader, what can you do to create a culture where it's safe for colleagues to talk openly about mistakes in the spirit of learning? Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. See you next time.